in my life. So, and this is the thing is that I find it to be very personal. When I like, when I think about mine, I've over the course of my lifetime, I have had jobs where my jobs are somewhat artistic and creative. And then it, it sort of sucks a lot of my energy out for me doing my own personal work. And then I've had jobs that are like zero creativity in the job. And then literally I'm just hired from the neck down just to like do a function. And it actually helps me to be incredibly creative and actually better with my time because I have less time for my art practice. And, and I hate calling it an art practice because it's my art mastership. But anyways, but the... <laughs> That idea of like, is it legitimate to have another job or do you need to be making money from your art, A? And then if so, like what kind of jobs work best for you? The whole topic about professional artists or not, it's funny, interestingly enough, I was talking to a friend yesterday about exactly the same thing. And then the answer is quite simple. To me, being a real artist is that you are making a difference. You're having a conversation with the universe, God, doesn't matter what it is. It's a, it's a conversation between you and, and the universe because it's, it's an involuntary thing. You know, it's happening by itself, by default. You have this urge, I think the artist, to, to make it happen and to, to put it out and to ex some, express yourself. But... You begin. You being dissolved in the cosmos or in the, in the universe. So in that sense, it really doesn't matter if you're selling the art or not. Even if you're not, if you're not, you know, showing it, it doesn't matter really. Funny enough, a lot of my early work got kind of presented like thirty years later or forty years later. Actually, right now, like it's being right now. It's part of a show in Rodnitz and Adlaben, right? There's a big show called Zrcadleni, like a mirroring. And about 30 artists, and I'm one of them. There are all these names, like, you know, Kolibal and Katarzyna Shida and Hugo de Martini and whatever, you know, from people who are 100 years old and who are like 40 years old, you know, it doesn't matter. And so all my work was in a drawer for like 40, 30 years. Doesn't mean that it didn't exist it was insignificant or significant suddenly eventually it found its way to to be seen and many people find it very profoundly interesting or moving or insightful and so it's reaching their life and that's all what's what's it about so i had the urge to do it and they have these the satisfaction to accept it i think that's that's basically the equation right that's kind of one, I would say, layer of, of, the, of the equation here. And then reacting to your other comments about how people make their living. In my, my case, I am a total mix. I have several lives, so I am, I'm doing my fine art, which is my you know, emphasis. But at the same time, I am a designer as well. I, I mean, graphic or strategic designer, a consultant as well. So I, I can make money. I do make money from that because I just know things and can advise. I am an associate artistic director of the largest short play festival in Canada for about the last 15 years. And I absolutely enjoy that. And that's a volunteer thing. That I'm not getting paid from this, but where I do all the, you know, the visual part, including all the stage sets, which are digi digital stage sets, 
and I did over 250 plays in the last 15 years, you know, including the Shakespeare, so whatever, it doesn't matter, mostly short plays. And it was tremendously rewarding and working with all these people and so on. And of course, as you mentioned before, it influences my art as well, maybe subconsciously or not. It really doesn't matter because what I learned from, let's say, my, I would say the uh, corporate world when you're working with companies and so on, you get very organized. You know, you are responsible, you're on time, you respond, you're nice, you're not a jerk or you don't have any moods, you know, because that's not accepted. Funny enough, you, you're an American. Go, can you imagine? <laughs> Most of my clients are American clients, by the way, which are very nice, friendly people. And we have a nice way to do business together. And I have certain talents they need, and, 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 and it's all great. But everything influences everything, and it's all very beneficial, right? Indeed. And then, then the same thing, for example, you learn patience and, and you determine to a commitment. That means like you stuck, stick to your guns and you finish things off and perseverance and so on. So I find, because I was tutoring and mentoring all kinds of younger folks, I'm talking artists, in many cases they failed. In terms of not like selling the art, whatever, but they failed because they were lacking the, I would say, that's a horrible word, by the way, it's discipline. <laughs> okay, so you're saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know, I, I, I'm an artist. I feel, I, I have all these feelings. I have all these ideas, whatever. And I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to enjoy the ride. I'm going to do this stuff. I love it. It's great. It's you're talking and every day with the universe, you combine things, whatever. And I had the other day, uh, I talked to a, a very famous director in the Czech Republic, and we agreed that it's a total joy to speak the language of things. And that's what it is like you talking to objects, they're talking to you, and you're in that beautiful world. Okay, like a child, you know, like they have this borderline between a reality or not or me or you whatever all oh, it's all blended it's it's very what do you call it liquid right so it's very nice to be in that liquid world but funny enough liquid or not you still have to deliver you have to be you have to get up and do it <laughs> and if going back to your other question you say well do i have the money to do it or right now for example it's like i need funds so Sure. So I funded myself. I got grants as well. All of the above. And I sold art as well. So I've seen people say, I I'm determined I have to sell my art. And, I, you know, that's it. But then sometimes they die in the process of not selling their art and the whole practice dies, which doesn't make sense to me, right? So, so that's not necessary. That's not necessary. Or... You said it before as well. <laughs> there was one note that you say they have to produce kitsch or something, whatever, in order to sustain. There was one thing I promised myself not to do ever because I have some friends who do that. They, they produce an assembly line and they detect that something is more successful. So to produce more of that, that's eroding. A lot of artists do like 
trends or other things like this to make some more affordable things for the general public versus like their one of a kind super fine art in the in the you know, gallery kind of uh, stuff. Yeah, but I've seen that then eventually in some cases they were seduced by the by the successfulness of certain art and suddenly it they gravitate towards that and end up in an impasse and basically they it totally screws up their you know their their practice because they lose the freedom suddenly they the what is it the dictatorship of money gets the better of them and that's the end of it yeah they become a slave to the almighty dollar Exactly. So that's a trap. Yeah, there's a lot of traps. Well, it is an issue because, like, I mean, if you're producing works, let's say five to ten thousand dollar original sculptures or or drawings in your case, kind of thing, um, and then you make, let's say, you make some more affordable ones, and the more affordable ones end up selling better or more, let's say, at least more frequently or whatever than the high priced ones, you're suddenly you're at that sort of point of like, okay, but do I keep doing those really expensive things or do I make more of the less expensive ones because they make me a better living? Yeah. It's the tough uh, decision to be made. So as I said, I decided I, I'm not going, you know, walking this path at all. And I do some, you know, consulting or strategic design stuff where I am a professional and then I don't have to compromise my art at all at all. I, I just can do stuff whatever I feel like and I don't really care if somebody buys it or not. Absolutely not. Love you for it. <laughs> totally admire it. I love it. I mean I'm sort of the same way. Like I don't I did some commissions early in my career and I fucking hated all of them. Uh, yeah. I, I look back on them. They're like, they're to me, they're just a complete embarrassment. They, they have nothing to do with me. They were, I, I pandered to them too much. And I, and I learned, I was like, I'm not doing that again. And uh, yeah, I mean, I pretty much make, I try my best to pretty much make whatever I want to make disregarding whether or not I can make money. Now, on the other hand, I'm now married and my wife would like me to make more money by selling my art. So I have a little bit of a in-house right. outside pressure, let's say, to try and make some more money there. But, you know, whatever. I'm an available bachelor, which means I don't have that pressure. <laughs> it is very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I have no obligation. So in that sense. So I have total freedom, yeah. I didn't get married until I was, I think, over 40 or 41, something like that. So, like, I had a long amount of time where I totally understand what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. It's yeah. a very different pressure when you have, you know, family members, let's call them, sort of encouraging you to uh, try and make more money instead of be happy. So so I did, you know, I did that. I have two children. I mean, children, they're very old, basically. They're in the early 40s, right? You do not look that old. I am very old, yeah. But so they're in, you know, early 40s or mid 40s, actually. So I did all that. And of course, you know, that forced me to do, obviously, to learn how to make money by applying my all kinds of talents. That works well. So you learn a lot along the way. And let's say I advise a company in the States in a medical field. And Advise them on you know, on everything from cradle to grave, for example. That means you know everything visual they have to do. They come to me, and we are all very happy. Eventually, you know, it's a very successful venture, which will change the world 
in the uh, industry of heart palpitations. We call it arrhythmias, for example. But anyway, it's just an example. So, but as I said before, all that other stuff, because I have to study, in, in order to consult, you have to understand what they, that particular client bloody does. And so then it forces you to study everything from quantum physics to biology to psychedelics, whatever, you know, like I have to, because I have to understand it. Yes, I had to do the same thing. Right, right. So, but then at the same time, it opens a whole new world, which basically go, oh, wow, you know, it's, so I'm reading, you know, the inner life of trees and, and again, about psychedelic drugs and about digitization, the issue of social media, of, you know, uh, algorithm, algorithms and Dadaism, and you know, it goes on and on and on and on, right? But it's influencing because art, again, is, I give you this because I, I have to share this this thought. One day I had an intern or something, and then I asked him, What is what is art? What is art? I mean, they they just they were freshly out of school and they said, Well, you know, it's something like you express yourself or whatever. I said, Yeah, yeah. What 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 does the artist do? And they said, We don't know. Nobody ever told them, you know, everybody's studying art for years. Nobody told them what art is. And I thought about something, and I go, I said, well, to me, a true art is when it's like raining in the mountains. And the rain soaks in and goes into the uh, under, uh, underground. And then it percolates from the mountains all the way to the valleys for hundreds of kilometers for years. And takes on all the nutrients and minerals and so on, gets richer and changing, meandering, whatever. And then years later, or hundred years later, it comes out somewhere in a valley as a spring. And people drink it, they say, Wow, this is really good water. That's what true art does. Yeah, I have not thought about that definition in a long time. That's a good definition though. That's that's yeah. I would go with that. Right? Because it's it's like it has to go through you, but it has to be involuntary. It means it's intuitive, it's subconscious, everything is in there. And you basically become the conduit. You make it eventually, you have to you have to reveal the spring to people to drink. But other than that, you just patiently and humbly let the bloody thing percolate in your subconscious for decades. It's an interesting conversation. I mean, I had a debate going back and forth for two years or so with a friend of mine in undergraduate school where we, we asked that exact question, like, what is art? And we each took on a, sort of a contradictory position. And every time we would run into each other, we would come up with a, a different idea of like of our, you know, a new insight to the idea. And in the end, we never truly came up with a, a sort of final thing but we did touch on a lot of it that sort of like was like he brought up things like is the way the wind blows through the leaves in autumn is that an art kind of like yeah yeah well well okay so i have an opinion on that too so i described this percolating you know spring thing whatever that's kind of the artist's job or how it how it originates how the art happens. Now, what art is, I have an opinion on that, is I consider art to be a formal system. What I mean by that, it's a code. 
it's basically a code. And the code is that the proof of that is when you look at a painting, for example, or a sculpture, you know right away that's a Titian or it's a Leonardo da Vinci or Botticelli or whatever, or it's a, or building is Frank Gehry. You can tell in a second. Why? Because it's a system. It's consistent. It, it, has, it has algorithms, basically, algorithms built in which are created by, by the artist. And he cannot help him or herself but to produce that algorithm. And then in terms of value, the more perfect the system of algorithms, which is the formal system, is the better value and the better system it is. It's like, think about like a software in your computer, if it's full of bugs, whatever, right? So it's like, ah, bleh, whatever. But if it's phenomenally perfect, then you go, wow, you know, this works like a charm. So when you look at a good art, which is, and again, the problem with art is it's an insanely long chain of matryoshkas. You know, you know those, or babushkas, you know, those Russian dolls? Yep. So it's an infinite length, basically, let's say they say the virus right now has 25, you know, a chain of 25 codes in it, 25,000, sorry. So it's a very long one, but and it includes all the historical contacts we were exposed to as humans for thousands of years. It's all in there. So this is so difficult because whatever for, since caveman and with the romans and greeks and so on is all accumulated and we have these you know it has to be all in all because in immediately recognize oh this is a roman pole and this reminds me of this and it reminds me of that and the brain calculates it in so and anyway that's my opinion okay i like i like your code idea but to me that only works sort of later so like the first frank Gehry house building i don't know what he did first um that he did that doesn't have the code in it yeah but only in through repetition through doing it again and again and building on it and expanding on it like basically like like what i'm hearing from this is like an artist is an artist's code in this case an artist's code is created through consistency of work over time or consistency of evolution. So usually there's an underlying thread. Everybody believes that you acquire that when you're very young, you know, from my childhood. So it's the, I agree with that. It's, that's true. But even if seemingly the work looks totally different from what you did in, in, in your 20s, still there has to be an underlying code which is connecting it all. And I agree with you that some artists find it very early on and some don't, some very early late. So obviously I'm very allergic to this term, emerging artists, like that's driving me nuts. I, I'm sorry, but okay. It's like, everybody's, oh my God, he's emerging, emerging. Like everybody was emerging. So poor little Lucian Freud, okay, was not really emerging until he was like 65, in my opinion, because he did the best work between 65 and 88. Right? Like his stuff, which sold, by the way, for like $68 million, like that obese female on the couch, right? Lucien Freud, like one of the, you know, best painters ever. I would say it's Rembrandt and Lucien Freud, but, but when you look at his early work, it's very stiff. 
and so somebody will crucify me for this, but comparing to this late work with all these nudes and you know the the dog there and lying and whatever, I mean that's incredibly phenomenal. As I say, it's Rembrandt. It's basically you feel the pain of all humanity in it, right? But it came later, so he was emerging. You know, they're late bloomers. So unfortunately, the the art world, some of them, they always look for this. Oh, he's young, so he must come up with a new idea. Well, sometimes it takes like 50 years, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping I'm a late bloomer. I hope still to make my best work later. Many did. I mean, we can go through names. I, you know, what's his name? Kooning, the Kooning, whatever, like another example. Well, even Picasso, like the, the yeah. stuff that we recognize as quote-unquote Picassos, he did much later in his life. I agree. Yeah, when you think about the red, pink, or blue period and then look at these true Picassos later on, I agree. Because when I look at it, I try talking about these algorithmic formal system because he is a great example of that, right? Immediately, you know it's a Picasso. And... Then I look at the whole painting in terms of his composition and you know all all the rules I understand and and don't still and I'm looking I cannot find anything wrong with it I I'm trying for years <laughs> I can't because it's bloody perfect It's really hard because like it's when you can find the thing that makes your work work like that it, that it's good let's call yeah, it right. you cannot it's really hard to quantify why it is good but it's really easy to quantify why things are bad right it's a very difficult balance like you, you, when you when something is in the studio and it clicks it works it, it jives whatever like it you can't explain what it is about it that does that. But if it's going wrong or it has gone wrong, it's so easy to just say, oh, it's because of that thing there. Like, yeah, like yeah. good is a very difficult thing to quantify, but bad is very easy to quantify. I have one way how to do this observation, if it's good or not. And it's very simple. I just look at it and I look at it through my Harab, you know, the stomach thing. You, know, you basically, you let everything go, you switch off the brain and look at it. And if I feel I have no comment, it means it's, it's basically silence. Then I go, wow, this is cool. And if something is sticking out, something like, you know, it, it goes like, like a little, <laughs> you know, little guy on the left shoulder, whatever the, well, I don't like this sport. That's out of proportion. You know, like that little thing. They go, nah, whatever. Or, funny enough, a good other example, so, so we have fun here, is when the, the art is too sweaty. You know, if somebody's trying too hard, you know, it's like it's sweaty. Yes. Oh, no. I go, okay, okay. He's, he's trying to impress. Oh, that's great. So... That that's the really big big pro problem that it has to look like it took no effort at all, even if you spend half a lifetime on it. Absolutely, I'm uh, very famous for overworking my work and trying <laughs> too hard, and I fail miserably a lot because of that. Like it, it's difficult. Though. It's it's a 
to a certain extent, it's a, a, a an ability to allow the work to talk to you in some ways, but it's also a confidence within yourself to say like, okay, it's done and I don't need to keep trying. Like I find for my work, anyways, my best way of doing it is to put it aside and I yeah. literally don't look at it for a couple of weeks, maybe a month, and then I'll bring it back out. And if it still is annoying me in whatever way, okay, fine, then it still needs to be worked on. But otherwise, oftentimes what happens is I put it away and when I bring it back out, I'm like, oh no, it's great just the way it is. It doesn't need anything more. So like sometimes a little bit, I, I'm big on time and distance to allow for that sort of uh, understanding to come in. I agree with that. I do the same. It needs time. But what's frustrating is that often I did something kind of like, a, I would say, insignificant, an, an idea how you do it, whatever, you put it aside. Six years later, okay, I look at it and go, holy macro, this was actually great. Why? You know, and all the other stuff, I thought, okay, this is great, great. Then I go back to this one, and it was a nugget of a direction which was much better than all the other stuff, right? I just didn't see it at that time. You were too close, right? Happens all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Indeed. All right. Now, I've neglected. I need to do some little sort of formal things here. Could you do me a big favor and please pronounce your name correctly for me? Uh, English or Czech? Um, you could do both. Both? Okay. So in English, is Lumir Hladik. In Czech, it's Lumir Hladik, right? All right. And then I also find it interesting. I want to go back to some of your like childhood. Uh, you were born in the Czech Republic. You now yeah. live in Canada. And you were born in the Czech Republic under communism. And then now, did you leave prior to communism leaving? Like, so like, what was the process of leaving and when and how did that all work out? I left in uh, 81 1981 so that's still under communism so very big deep 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 communism how did you get out it was very complicated because i already at that time i was married i had two children who were like two and three and a half years old so the regime the communist party would make sure that the whole family doesn't leave together obviously you know that's the that's obvious so what i had to do is I went to the island of Cyprus for holidays, okay? And then my wife with my kids went to visit my aunt in Munich in West Germany at that time, West Germany, with my mother together. Different time later on, and it was so complicated that basically I had an extended visa, so then I had to actually sign an affidavit that they allow my family to leave the country while I'm staying back because the police thought I'm already back from Cyprus, but I was delayed. So they thought we're one of us is still in the country. So then I left for Cyprus, for Cyprus. They left for West Germany. And then there was a major glitch because I didn't expect that if I go to an island, they would take my ID away, my passport, because usually they would do that to everybody. So to stop you from defecting, right? So they still did that on, on the island of Cyprus. So I go, okay, I'm, I'm screwed because I don't have any ID. So how do I leave? So then my brother joined me because my 
at that time, my brother lived in Toronto. He left in 68, 1968. So he joined me on the island of Cyprus, and we're trying to figure out how to get me out. And there were all the kind of people, and we have to smuggle you on a ship to Marseille and to go to the to Athens and to a no, I mean it was it was bizarre and kinds of con artists and trying to make money on it on you, but eventually I came to my senses. I went to the West German embassy and asked for asylum on the grounds of I'm actually half German, right? So my mother was German and and I I spoke absolutely fluent German at that time. So they took me on and worked on on some the way to take me out of you know to take me out of Cyprus, uh, basically on my story, because I don't have any ID. They didn't know who, who I was. So they had to verify. So they actually then talked to my mother in Munich after my family arrived in Munich. They talked to her. They verified that she was actually, you know, born German and so on. And then they had to do one more thing, which is kind of funny, that it was kind of the rule of the the, the diplomacy that I had to meet the Czechoslovakian ambassador in Cyprus, before I was basically taken on by by West Germany as a as a asylum seeker, right? So I met the Czechoslovakian ambassador, who was actually a Slovak, you know, Czechoslovakia, right? So he was, and he told me, and uh, just don't have a heart attack. He said, "Mr. Hladik, you know, you're committing a crime by leaving the country." It's funny when you think about an American, you know, you're not leaving the bloody fucking country. You're just, you're just moving somewhere else because you know, you're going to experience another country. What's the point? Like, whatever. But there, leaving country was a crime. You know, okay. You know, it's a crime. So, but we are so nice that if you come back, you will go to prison for three years. And after that, you will become a, a regular contributing citizen to you know of a social uh, our beautiful socialist country and my answer was it was funny i would go mr ambassador i i hear you and i'm so sorry but you know i am a family man and my family is in munich now and i don't feel like i should abandon my children to go to prison i'm sorry i think i have to go to munich to join my children it's a hard decision, you know, prison or, or family, but I think I'll go for the family thing. <laughs> and so the German ambassador was like <laughs> kind of, you know, smirking in the, in the back. It happened in the building of the West German embassy, obviously, on the, you know, it was important. So I cannot be kidnapped and, you know, to back into Czechoslovakia. So, and then the West German embassy gave me a passport, a West German passport for foreigners. And I was so lucky. It was the only one they issued that year on the island of Cyprus. Because they fell for me. They go, yeah, yeah, this guy, we have to help him out here. <laughs> and then, then I spent a year in Germany because we, we applied for the Canadian to be uh, moved to Canada and the Canadian government. But it takes a while. So we spent about close to a year in Munich. And then we, then we moved over to Toronto. Okay, so the reason for Toronto was because of your brother being there. There were multiple reasons. One, they asked me to, why, why don't you stay in Germany? You're half German, you speak the language, whatever. First of all, Germany's 
is a beautiful country, but it's just too many Germans. So it was too close to the Czech Republic and, and, and so on. So then I really want, first of all, I wanted to, yeah, be closer to my brother, live in an English-speaking country. I wanted to learn how to speak English because I didn't at that time, right? So English is, is an opening gate to a lot of knowledge because almost 90% of all the information in the world is written in English. Then, of course, Canada is, because I love nature, by the way, a lot. I go, Canada, you know, the, the, the endless virgin forests, or, or not less or more virgin, whatever, still compa- comparing to few acres in Czech Republic, where they shot the last bear in 1886, you know, I thought that would be beautiful. And I never regretted that because I, I canoed the Canadian lakes and streams and forests, whatever, for, you know, 40 years. And it's an incredible experience. Right. Now, I, I looked up a bunch of stuff, and everybody talked about your connection with the wilderness and this kind of stuff. So, like, I guess this, the first question is, like, do you live in the wilderness, or do you, like, have a cabin in the wilderness that you I don't have to? a cabin. Uh, sorry, we used to go to one. But even a cabin is not wilderness. So I don't live in a wilderness because being an artist, you have to have access to a Molotov spray cans. Or, you know, photography or the internet, obviously, right? So that's a given. But the wilderness in Canada is very, very close by, right? So about three hours, three hours from Toronto, the forest starts and goes all the way to Alaska. So you have about 8,000 kilometers of forest, which is enough, okay? That's plenty. <laughs> For one lifetime, yes. For one lifetime. And the real wilderness is that what I would love, and I lived in Alberta as well for five years, so I did a lot of Rockies. But the the canoe trip is you get a canoe, you get all the equipment that means your food, everything. You put it into the canoe, you put it on a lake, and then you travel. For a week or a week, some people do it for six months. And you're the only one in the wilderness, period, Okay. Sometimes you meet somebody else, but they're, you know, it's really, there's no paths, there's no roads, there's nothing. There's only you and the canoe and the bush and the waters and bears and wolves. It's all there. You'd see them. They, they're next to you. Okay. But so far, so good. They didn't attack. And then the, the ultimate, which I did many times, is that to accelerate this, this thing, because you drive about six hours north. In your car, then unload, get the canoe. Then there's a company that float airplanes, like the Beavers and and, and Cessnas, whatever. Mm-hmm. They load the canoe on on the Beaver on on the floats on the floats. You get in. They fly you another, you know, uh, for another forty five minutes an hour north, and they land on a lake. They drop you off, and they fly away and suddenly you're in a complete silence you you know it's the bush it's like noon so birds don't sing whatever and it's the deafening silence (laughs) and it's like 28 degrees you know the water the water is warm it's beautiful it's great and you're on your own for a week or two weeks doesn't matter and you're traveling the country and you don't meet anyone. And of course, there's no signal. There's nothing. If something happens to you, you're dead. 
which is great because <laughs> you 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 are careful like and then in the in case of this the rule is with the airplane is sometimes you do a rendezvous so that means they they say they will pick you up a week later 100 or 150 kilometers down the stream and then if you don't show up it will come the next day if you don't show up we'll do a search party for you but that might take another week because nobody can land anywhere because it's a very rugged country right and when i say river it's it's a it's a system of lakes streams little rivers little portages and so on different levels so it's an obstacle course so you know about a week you lose about eight pounds that's a great way to lose weight too i did that i did a whitewater rafting trip did, yeah. for like two weeks oh, and it was both exhilarating and enjoyable but also like one of the most difficult things because of course like you we both wear glasses so like i was constantly in fear because we were going through rapids and stuff that i was going to lose my glasses and if i'd lost my glasses i would have been screwed no i i only use them for the computer so oh no i I use them to see see that's a problem they they have to be you have to have the string right i did the croquis i put the i mean but i was still like the whole time i was in fear that i was going to lose those i mean you know some it's one of some of those difficult things of like modern conveniences that would be really really horrible if i lost them oh yeah no that's the thing it's it's what i love you you have to get ready for the trip and you have a list and you go through this all the time whatever because there's no way once you they drop you down if you don't have a spoon or or fire you're in bed period indeed yeah you learn to be prepared yeah, yeah, because the, occasionally you run into folks because it's these routes, whatever, but sometimes you don't. There's nobody, period. Okay, and then this whole interest in uh, nature and spirituality and stuff, you've brought a lot of that into your artwork as well. And so I'm sort of interested in that decision because a lot of times when like I read about you, they often talk about the 1970s and the 1980s and your performances and your, your, um, oh shit, what are they called? The happenings and this kind of thing. They call it actions. There you go. So your actions. And, and then there seems to have been a very strong transition, uh, from sort of that sort of performative work into object-based, but then the object-based has this integration of the, this natural element and a lot of it, uh, and a sort of a respect for it and a discussion about the nature. So like what brought you to like deciding to include nature in your work? So to connect all this, so when. I did all the, the action art, but I did some installation stuff already in the 70s as well. So, you know, in the book uh, written by Pavlina Morganova, there, there are some examples of that. So then I'm doing installations now. So it's kind of, you know, it's just moved on, but it's still there. But the, the connection with nature was interesting because then, again, I was doing action art. And then there's a relation between action and intervention. And then at one point I was doing all kinds of drawings and, and objects. And then I thought, you know, I need a divine intervention. I want to work with the randomness or chance. So I thought about all kinds of ways. And suddenly, because I was in the nature all the time, I thought, why don't I expose some stuff 
like some, you know, in this case, these cardboard tubes in the wilderness and invite bears, black bears, like because it's Ontario and other animals to, to participate, to do some randomness like destruction or whatever. And then I will work from that. That means I will get this, you, you know, there's a different, when you do something, it's a, it's a wanton thing. It's like you do it. You have the influence when you draw. It's just you. And I wanted to work with the universe. That means with, with another being, with another force or power, which will work with me. So there was trial and error. But again, I put some fish or meat into these concentrated tubes, wrapped them in paper and so on, and we hung them on trees with chains and expose them to to our friends you know to the black bears and other animals it worked like a charm they loved it okay all of them so so uh, usually the bears opened it up and there were fishers raccoons martins like the whole you know the whole forest came in to participate and i have videos showing it there were like spy cameras you know triggered by motion right so i even have you know videos where the whole family, three cubs and a mother bear come in and they play with it and they, they use it like a park for entertainment. Not only that there was some food, but it was a, it was a toy because they, you know, animals are inherently very curious, right? So I, I have all of those animals coming in and doing it. And they, they ripped it apart beautifully in such a way I could never achieve myself. So this is this, I would say, bio-interventions, I call it. So this is the interspecies bio-intervention with, with, between bears and fishes and raccoons and all, whatever. And even insects, because eventually when the tube was ripped open, all the other bacteria came in and ate everything out, whatever. So it was nice, clean as a whistle, right? And then I came back and then continued the work applying paint and everything and so on. The, the theoretical or the thesis for all this is that I compared it to the catacomb saints art. And the, the catacomb saints is that, you know, there were all these bones in the catacombs of Rome and they were moved to Europe, like to Austria, Germany, and they, they created these basically artificial saints out of them. They gave them names. The best church containing about 14 of those is in Waldsassen in Germany on the border of Czech Republic. And they decorated, you know, there were these nuns and they decorated all these, the saints with gold and embroidery and so on and put them in these enclosures, it gave them beautiful names. Then uh, at that time, and there was like 17th, 18th century, the people would give their children the names of these saints. So this is talking a little bit about mortality immortality and celebrity so the juxtaposition of the whole thing is that uh, you know i invited the anonymous animals which i believe are martyrs like you know all the animals because of our arrogance or stupidity and greed whatever i think all the animals are basically victims right so i invited these victims these martyrs these anonymous bears and animals to do some art then expose it as a celebrity thing, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, showing a picture of Jennifer Aniston, for example, right? Or Sybil Shepherd, I, I, I don't know, whatever. So I have these anonymous animals, I, I, I venerate them, basically.
you you so dated yourself with Sybil Shepherd, but it's okay. No, 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 it's not dated because I saw a a movie these days when she was like nineteen and just reminds me of her. But talking about Jennifer Aniston, she's still on. She when is. you go through through whatever. And and again, my my the, what's funny is if you check the internet and you check and Jennifer Aniston, she would be let's say sixty million results. Michelangelo would be like thirty million. I find it bloody sad, <laughs> and I don't have anything against Jennifer Aniston, but but you have a lot for Michelangelo. I, I love Michelangelo, I have to admit. <laughs> it's an interesting topic in and of itself because you seem to have some knowledge on algorithms and this kind of stuff. I, As much as I find the internet to be incredibly useful, I mean, for God's sakes, we're doing this virtual thing over the internet here. So, right. of course, I, I appreciate it in many, many ways. But on the flip side of that, it is a very sad state of affairs how... <sighs> It's a cult of personality. It's pretty much all that it's turned into. And and people who can use that algorithm to their advantage, they win. And people who don't understand how the algorithm works and or can't work with that cult of personality, they lose. So it has nothing, and sadly, a lot of the stuff in the world, specifically when we're talking about the arts, has little to do with merit, craftsmanship, skill, talent, any of those things, as much as these days it has more to do with the ability to work the algorithm. Yeah, it's basically the, the power of your elbow is stronger, is it more important than your talent or your skill? I agree. I agree. That's unfortunate, right? And that's why going back, you know, we will circle back to the beginning of our discussion is that for everybody who wants to do art, you have to split your personality. You have to be basically become a you know a totally schizophrenic man or woman. And in order to do good art, you have to be so humble and meek, and you have to be kind of in in touch with yourself, with the world, with you know all that good stuff. And then, in order to penetrate the art world, you have to become a very aggressive marketer and a very determined and committed and strategic person, unfortunately. Yeah, I used to joke always about like the term that we used was cunning plan, that like whenever you approached <laughs> it, you always had to do it with a cunning plan. Like you didn't do it in some sort of manipulative way, but you always sort of had a hope that if I go out to dinner with these people and have drinks with these people, that maybe that something will come of that. Like it became a lot of that kind of stuff, of course, pre COVID kind of these days, but yeah, right. so, I mean, these days it's more of a, if I can, for whatever reason, tag somebody on a social media thing that somehow they might, you know, see me and like me and then I'm doing, you know, better. And that's, to me, it's so sad. Like I'm of the generation. I'm, closer to you than I am to many of them, I think, in that I'm still of the generation of like merit. You do good work and you get results from that. But unfortunately, it's a bit more of cult of personality these days. And I it's it's uh, discouraging for me for the future. Well, it's, there's there's one another thing I which I found was that to find kindred spirits in that world, which I was blessed. I, I found many, 
and that they like your work and then they promote it as well or just suddenly through them you go but you have to again that's an effort to find them and they have to find you because there's so many right well it's not just find them but then you also have to for lack of a better word like befriend them and be create relationships with them and then and then you even have to nurture them so like this goes back again to like something you brought up early on which is your work from 30 and 40 years ago sort of being rediscovered and i mean that didn't happen by mistake but that happened because you did something 30 or 40 years ago or you produced something 30 or 40 years ago how did they how did that trickle down to then being re uh, discovered now I can tell you that it's it's quite interesting. is is a little bit of random, a little bit of destiny, I guess. So I did, you know, that work, and then one of the photographs there was the action art piece with the mirror, the, the at the beach, the mirroring sea, and that showed up in one of the books from Peter Rezek in his book, and so it was seen there, and then. Another significant person showed up, and that's Pavlina Morganova, who is an art historian and curator. Presently, she is the vice dean of the Academy of Fine Arts in Prague. And she wrote a book about Czech action art. And then she heard, she first of all, she saw that there, but she heard from Yuzi Kovanda, who is, you know, teaching, he's, I would say, the, the person in action art from in the Czech Republic. The most known one and we did things together we were friends you know in in, in the 70s and i seen most of his performances and he did some of mine so he told her about this thing and about that piece because they were they were both teaching at the academy of fine arts and she mentioned that one in one paragraph about that mirrored action art piece and my friend from Prague sent me that book he goes hey, look Somebody's writing about you. And I read that, I go, wow, you know, I in my drawer somewhere deep, I have another 16 or 20 other action art pieces and all that stuff, whatever, it's sitting there for, for decades. So I wrote to Pavlina and I thought, you know, if you're interested, I have more, not only this one, I did many, many other pieces. And Pavlina wrote back and she goes, Come on, send it to me. That's great. Like, oh, you know, she's a historian. Like, there was a new uh, Tutankhamun treasure somewhere she didn't know about because she she dedicated her life to this, like, to find all these artists. Because at that time in the seventies, we were just separated by by not knowing about each other. Period. Because you know it was communist regime, right? We we're not allowed to show. And so I sent everything to her. Then I, I mentioned, I said, I feel a little bit forgotten because after so many years, always in a drawer. And Pavlina wrote back and she said, I think I have to write a book about you. And she did. That's what happens when you find a kindred spirit. <laughs> but yeah, that's like the dream that somebody will sort of discover you, you know, even, you know, but the, the, the most important sort of important slash impressive part of it is that it happened while you were still alive. 
I, I, I can test that I'm still alive and that's great. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of those kinds of things are found posthumously. Shit. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. After somebody dies, that, you know, it. Uh, posthumously, that's correct. Posthumously. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the, yeah. I mean, like, you know, artists are suddenly revered after their death, kind of thing, more so than they were when they were alive. So, I mean, to have right. something like that within your lifetime is a pretty right. astounding thing to happen. Yeah, so that was that was phenomenal, and then so she published that book, and then she was expanding her original Encyclopedia of Action Art and Happenings and so on as well. So then, of course, so all that that content went into that book, and then because she was occasionally she was teaching and lecturing in North America, like people were complaining that there's no book about in English about Czech action art. Because so, so the communists succeeded. The Iron Curtain was very strong and very successful. So nobody knew anything about you know, what happened in, at that time. We were underground, dispersed, silenced, muffled, right? And it was all in the doors. So thanks to Pavlina, everything came back out. After 40 years, I actually... Uh, seen art from other people what they did at that time <laughs> okay and then so she actually published an english version of basically encyclopedia of the czech action art after like between the 60, uh, 60s all the way to the year 2002 or something well but see what's so painful for me though is the amount of probably very talented artists that were producing let's go so let's stay with your action work yeah. so like the action yeah. art that let's say they died and then their family didn't know what to do with it and it literally is just lost to history because of whatever like because I mean, i've been thinking a lot about like legacy planning and how like if you're if you're children or if you don't even have any children that like if and when you die as an artist that if somebody else doesn't sort of take on your estate that like you literally could be lost to history and that's a, a very uh, difficult thing for me to think about because i i sort of hope that doesn't happen <laughs> to me as, a, as a, that's actually that happened so as a consequence all all this thanks the publishing and everything else then you know, there is plenty of institutions who acquisition my art, including Umiratsko Promyslové Museum, Prague, the National Gallery of Canada, like all they have my art now. Okay. But it took this long to, to discover and do all this stuff. And, and, and again, and then I have a recent story again, when I talked to this director who teaches at Batya University in Zlín, his name is Jan Gogola. Mlachi. He does the documentary movies. And then his trajectory was that he wrote some a beautiful article about my action art movies because they were filmed at that time. There was another acquisition. So the National Film Archive of the Czech Republic acquired all my movies. They are looking after them. Nice. Right? So that happened. And they were actually, because they digi digitized them, so they were broadcasted or screened in uh, at the, at the Yehova Documentary Festival in October. And this gentleman, uh, he then told me, because we were on Skype recently, and he said, well, I, I knew about you from this Petr Rezek book, and then I bought the book from Pavlina Morganova at Gask in Kutna Hora. At the, Gask is the Museum Sredočeského kraje. 
and I saw the book there. I didn't know that it was available, so I bought the book. And then I saw your movies at the Yilava Festival. I, I had to write about it. So that's what what's happening. It it, it you know, we talking about the spring and percolating. It it just percolates through. I guess it goes for every everyone. Like every artist that has the kind of percolating trajectory, I would say. Sadly, yeah. every artist does not have that, but you did, and good for you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, there are a lot. Well, but there are a lot of artists that are you know, they, uh, for lack of, I, mean, I don't mean be to be mean about some, but like some people shouldn't be put in the canon. I mean, the canon of the art uh, movements. So let's say, like in particular, like yours is Czech, you know, action works for that that work. They not everybody should be there. You know, it should be the best of the best. It should be the top top tiers. But that's my snobby okay. opinion. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay but when now i within that so like i want to know because like you're the first person i've had the chance to talk to that basically had their work like you did work at a certain period in time and then you've sort of for lack of a word sort of changed directions yeah and like you're doing something now that's very different than that and now of course you're getting accolades for that older work but not i'm not sure you haven't addressed whether you're getting any accolades for your concurrent work so i'm sort of like does it feel good to be getting accolades for work that's so old or do you sort of have this sort of wish that people would say oh he did this great stuff then and look what he's doing now okay so no no i get accolades for the work i'm doing now as okay well. great so that, that's no problem and I am not envious of myself. Yeah, I guess that's sort of what, yeah. Like, do you envy, like do you want to go back and make some more action works? No, no. See, see wait, we touched on that previously, right? No, 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 no. It's sort of, you move on, and, and I am great. Yeah, I'm very happy that they see the merit of the early work, and they see the merit of the new work, because some of the institutions have my new work. For example, the National Gallery in Prague has one of the bio-interventions from the Canadian forest. Mm -hmm. So is GASC has one. The Tichy um, Ocean Foundation in Zurich has one. So, yeah, I know that's okay. That's that's fine. And because you see that with every every artist, like going back to Izzy Kovanda, for example, he did this action art thing as well, but then later he did paintings and he does these minimal installations and so on so everybody's moving on right and again i guess you know with some kind of a delayed response or immediate response i was supposed to have all kinds of uh, exhibits in prague this year uh, actually last year didn't happen for obvious reasons i'm supposed to have one an installation solo installation in in uh, september in prague but if it's going to happen i'm not sure because again, the the situation is quite dire, as as you know. I'm not sure when I'm going to get vaccinated in here, for example, and if the if they actually allow people to travel there or not. This is still in the air, right? And it doesn't matter. It will eventually happen. But all the the new shows or no exhibits are basically all the new stuff I'm doing, right? You know, or the for the last twenty or so many years, and it, it's evolving constantly. So it. It's a pioneering journey for me, period. I'm not sure what I'm going to do next day or in the next week or next year. I have no clue, right? It's happened by itself. 
I don't even know what I'm doing this evening, so it's fine. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any topics you want to talk about that I haven't brought up? Going back to the first discussion we had, maybe even prior we switched on the recording, was the the question, you know, who is an artist, who is not, what constitutes art or not. It's funny because I, I see all kinds of strange things happening in the art world where you see this news, especially in the mainstream. Oh, this new artist, he... He, he creates work by injecting color into bubble wrap. And so he did a picture from Sarah, you know, like the Grand Jatte, you know, that big mm-hmm. painting, by in, injecting the ink into the bubbles. Uh, is I think I've seen art? this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was like yesterday or something. Yeah. I don't know if that's art or not. but Because sometimes a lot of folks are impressed by tediousness you've seen a lot of that saying oh my god he built a eiffel tower out of 15 million toothpicks for example i go wow you know it took him 15 years to do that and they're impressed right okay that actually is impressive though like just just by sheer devotion to the project i will give that impressive now on the other hand building some lego thing and calling that a piece of art that's a fine line for me. No, no, but but again, if you're talking art or being impressed by, you know, I can be as well impressed by somebody running fast, like the 100, 100 meters in three seconds. You know, that's impressive, right? But is that art? <laughs> well, okay, it's a tough one because like, okay, I go back to when I was a kid, I remember in like fifth grade, I went to the Smithsonian and I saw this piece by this guy, James Hampton, where that he he made this thing. Okay, it's the most magnificent thing. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's a it's a throne room that he built to the second coming of Jesus Christ that he he made in a garage that he rented that nobody else knew about. And the only time that they found this thing was after he died and he wasn't paying rent. Suddenly the people were like, hey, what's this thing? And they went and they found this entire throne room that he built from garbage from the schools because he was a janitor in the DC school system. And this guy had been working on this thing for decades and he never intended anybody else to see it other than him and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then he wrote 500 page volumes that were written in a language that only he and Jesus, the second coming of Jesus Christ would understand. I love that work. I mean, the pure need to make that work and never show it to anybody is to me sort of like the truest form of making an art piece. Yeah, I agree. It was magnificent. Yeah. But still, you know, again, bubble wrap or toothpicks, I'm not sure, yeah. So there is a, a there is a thing these days, you're right, that like if it if it looks like people put a lot of effort or time into something, that people think it's valuable. Yeah. That's the thing about effort and time you're right that it has it has a mystical or mysterious value and that's why i would say in my opinion people value expensive things because it takes a lot of time to do stuff and then it's expensive and so what happens is 
think about like a fairy tale that making some something for a long time it eats your time your life away you basically it's your life encapsulated in something and my theory is that it's the stairway to heaven you're basically buying your immortality by buying expensive things whatever has big value it's a piece of time you're buying from other people in order to gain gain immortality wait is the artist gaining immortality or the person who buys it the person who buys it okay right so it's sort of like remember in in, in renaissance or baroque there would be the the carpenter somebody they did the furniture or some kind of piece it took him 15 years to make it or 12 i remember 12 years you know with all the out of you know ivory inlays or whatever okay and so at that time that piece was would cost like today in today's money let's say 20 million dollars or something so that's exactly a good example of that like you know it's it's ingenuity whatever time and so on uh, again same thing with gold or metals rare because it takes more time and more effort to get them out then they're more rare they're more expensive so that immediately you're buying your your immortality Right, but I mean, does does that so does rarity increase the value? Because I mean, this is something that like we as artists sometimes think about, like, or at least I think about, like, it's I do I want to make a lot of pieces or a few pieces? Like, I mean, you know, like if I make a let's say a series of work, do I present all let's say fifty pieces that I pull together that I think are really quite strong, or do I only put out into the world 10 amazing pieces like so like does the exclusivity increase value or does it decrease the value that that's where when it becomes really complicated because we both know we both know that that we have picasso who painted if I'm not mistaken, 18,000 paintings okay not including the napkins he drew on no 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 like okay. exclusive of napkins yeah 18,000 it still doesn't diminish the value of each as well. Then you have the other side of the coin, somebody like Vermeer van Delft, Jan Vermeer van Delft, who painted how many? 42 in all his life, which I adore. adore like the, he's like my God, okay, Vermeer van Delft, 42. So I, it's, I think that's, that's not the issue. You cannot manipulate that, whatever, because again, this is, then it comes to the point of quality of the algorithm and the quality of of your celebrity which is the notoriety how how many people know you so i won't even go there because then we have to go into a quantum computing here okay that means like how to calculate a value of something right it's it, it triangulated okay between the inherently essential merit of the of the algorithmic of the the formal system called art and then the perception of the public did they get it or not then the actual market itself which is working with, with both entities basically yeah, right okay but i'll ask it specifically for you and your work i know that you make you you did action work in your early career you do currently i know you do drawings you've done sculpture but i also have seen that you've done 
what you're calling archival archival prints. So, like, what what was the the decision to make something like a gicle archival print? Because that becomes a a thing that can be reproduced. So now that's sort of a, almost a different genre. I, okay, I know what I'm getting to. What I'm getting to is in art school and like when we're young they're always telling us to like choose a thing and become a master of it like be a be a you know an amazing sculptor or an amazing painter or an amazing performance artist whatever it is focus on that thing and make that sort of your signature thing that's that's your style that's what you're known for whatever word you want to put to it you have somehow (laughs) to my great envy slash admiration been able to transcend all that so like you have moved from action work into drawing into sculpture and also being able to do prints so like, are they all linear to you or do you sort of treat the prints differently than you do let's say the sculptures there's no difference okay yeah no it's it's a, it's sometimes it's kind of a standard so for example in action art usually you have you have the original negatives you can do a, a print from that or you you have a negative and you do limited edition that's a standard in the industry so i inherited that i didn't invent that same with the let's say the movies there will be three you know a limited edition of three of each and some of them are being already sold so that's fine and then it comes the other work I do is basically the, it's combination of objects, sculptures, ready-mades combination with, with, you know, it's, it's, it's liquid, it's fluid, it's all of that. Right. And so it's all, all the same. doesn't matter to me. Again, I, I don't consider something old or new or different, whatever it's, it's, it's my work. So I have to stand for it. Right. It's like, that's it. Well, like I think back to a lot of like the perf- what, uh, like the happenings and the performance art. In I went to school in San Francisco, so I think a lot about San Francisco, like yeah, Chris Chris right. Burden and those that gang, right? And how the performances were one thing, and of course, I wish I was there present for the actual original performance. But now, like the images of the performance or the video of the, the documentation has now become sort of a representation of the performance, and so like. Is that enough, or or it, it was it the original thing that was the more important thing? So, like, I guess it's sort of the difference of documentation as an art form versus the performance as an art form. So the the opinion is that the action itself is that it actually happened is the substantial thing. And then the documentation, because nobody could have been some, uh, in my case, or going back to others, Melchok, Stemberai, Zikovanda, Karel Miller, all these people, sometimes there were some friends around, sometimes uh, there was no one, okay? And so the main merit of the action art or performance art is that you actually make it happen. So it's sort of, think about, like, say, the my piece when I went to it was in 81 I went to the forest for an hour blindfolded at night in an unknown unknown road 
and then stopped, made the line, made my finger, you know, where I stopped and went back. The next night, I tried to stop right in front of the line, again, blindfolded at night. So what you do is you work your tools, in this case, is not, let's say, a canvas or a brush or, or a chisel or something. It is your body. It's the landscape. It's the time of day. And it's the thought. It's basically your intent is combined with the actually uh, your your ergonomics and ecology, whatever. It's that's that's the tools. That's the ingredients of your installation. Call it, let's say, your intervention, whatever, or action. Right. So the, you have to make it happen. In order to claim that it's actually, actually a piece of art, you have to actually do it. You not know, just the thought doesn't count. And then you you document that means there's a proof that you've done it, and the the proof is then a limited edition of the proof has a value, uh, which is then uh, presenting the the actual the actually action the actually act. Okay, but what, so then on a side note of that, like I'm thinking back to Chris Burden, like I love one of the his pieces, the the one where he gets shot in the arm, kind of yeah, piece. Right. If I could a afford it, and b if it was even available, if I could buy that bullet, I would. Uh-huh. Right. Like so, like so, is it is it the documentation, or is it even also like could you? present slash sell put on the market whatever like if for instance what you're saying about the blindfolded thing so like do you still have that blindfold like does is that a a piece that has then become a documentation of that action that is then available to be presented no i don't and there was at that time was not considered material it was really not important the the again the this is funny because action art is the actually act you do is that the piece, not any object. The only exception is that I did this piece which called Somewhere and Nowhere, where the friend drove me blindfolded for the whole day somewhere, you know, in Czechoslovakia and back. And under the, the condition that he won't ever, until his death, reveal to anyone where we went. So I didn't know, and I still don't know. He's still alive, but he never divulged that to anyone. That was the condition. And then we we drove for like four hours, I don't know, somewhere. And then we stopped for about a few minutes. And he took me out of the car, and I sat down. There was a meadow because there was grass. I couldn't feel it. And I plucked a piece of grass, a blade of grass, and took it with me. And this is the only exception. I still have that piece of grass in in in, in a you know, sort of like a bookmark. Okay, I still have that. That's the only exception. Well, because like I remember being in art school and seeing Matthew Barney exhibition for the first yeah. time, and how he it, while he creates these fantastical worlds and all this kind of stuff, he also then presents the objects that he produces that are part of the films that he creates and kind of stuff. So like the objects within it also then become part of the presentation of the work itself. So that's why right. I'm asking. Yeah. Cause the, what he did, there was kind of a, another chapter in, 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 you know, and in this kind of art, because you're talking, right. We, we started with happenings in the sixties and then it evolved to, 
performance and action art and installations, conceptual art, so whatever, body art, land art, you know, like we have all those terms. And then eventually it stopped and then the world moved into installations. And now we have, again, we have stuff like interventions, for example. So I circled back, for example, with the animals. I, you know, I'm doing, I called it intervention, but it, it's an interspecies bio intervention. I, I think it's kind of, nobody is doing that. So I think I'm just pioneering that. <laughs> I'm unaware of having heard of that before, but I'm not always on top of everything. So yeah, yeah so far, so far, I've uh, uh, no, no, I'm the only one. Yeah. Okay, good. All right, I, I, you know, you brought up sort of like concepts and ideas and all this kind of stuff. One thing that I've noticed a lot, and I bitch about a lot on this podcast, is the need for text and written statements to sort of validate or explain your artwork. Do you do a lot of these? Do you appreciate having to do a lot of these? I accept it as part of the practice. Fair enough. I noticed, you know, some some artists have really hard time to to express or to describe what they do as well. But again, you know, it's kind of part of the game, I was a game, but it's part of the the practice. Then at the same time, maybe some people I'm talking the viewers need a little bit of a nudge. And then on my part I usually do the work. That means I don't think about it. It's, it's an intuitive thing. Like I have no, and I swear here, okay, I don't have any jurisdiction over my art, what I'm doing. I basically wake up or I walk or I drive and I see it finished in front of my eyes. And then I just go and do it, okay? And then I think about it for days, weeks, months. And then eventually... I realize what is it about much later. I have to dig and dig and dig. For example, I did, I had a show an installation show in Ottawa a few years ago together with DZ Kovanda. We came over and we had this exhibit together. It was called polar transference. And I had some objects there where I had no idea what is it about where it came from, what does it represent? No. And eventually, suddenly I was driving, I go, oh, I get it, okay? It was, I would say, percolating impression from an accident what happened in the Czech Republic. A few years ago, there were two, two girls who drove in a car and they were both named Nikola. The one of them who was driving was driving 160 kilometers an hour and she was texting and talking on the phone, behaving totally crazy. She was 21. And eventually, obviously, it, did, it didn't work. They crashed and she died. The other one was actually videotaping on her iPhone the whole time. What happened? And then suddenly you see this, this horrible, what the fuck are you doing? And silence. And the phone was running, still running. And then you hear somebody coming over, opening the door of the crash car. And she said, oh, this one is still breathing. And you hear it on the phone because it was not a podcast, but it was, you know, it was, it was running video. They were sharing about how fearless they were in terms of their life. 
doing everything wrong and daring the destiny, right? And Nicola and Nicola. And then after all this, I go, oh, these objects are basically doors from the car in a way. Oh, yeah. I often find that it takes, you know, three to five years after completing a series. So, like, I could work on a series for two or three years, and then I, and then when I'm done with it, then I still need more time and distance to be able to reflect back on what yeah. was happening in my life, what was I thinking about at that time, what were circumstances, you know, how were my jobs and my personal life going, and how did that inter interact into my art before I can really sort of have that distance and perspective to be able to say that's what that work was about. Yeah, right. Yeah, it takes a long time. I know, but the problem is, is like when you're done with it and you present it to the world, they expect you to have a statement ready that's eloquent <laughs> that I'm like, I'm not ready for that statement. Like, unless you want to wait another three years, then I can give you a good statement. But I'm also finding a lot that curators are a great help. Like I found a lot of freelance yep. curators that like having them come in and take a look and ask questions and stuff has actually been very helpful to find that perspective a little bit faster than yeah. I ne maybe naturally could on my own. Yeah, I agree. So I do the same as well. But still, they they cannot dig into your head until uh, you find it yourself. Many times they, you know, in, in case of Petr Rezek, uh, that when he described that piece with the mirror, he knew more than I did at that time. <laughs> so he was right, yeah. Indeed. All right. Let's wrap this up. I got two final questions. One is, yeah. could you name me like three notable artists that you think people should be paying more attention to? Three? Okay, not 3,000? Yeah, you could do more. <laughs> I just randomly chose the number three. It's fine. I was influenced really by, you know, Joseph Beuys, uh, but everybody knows Joseph Beuys, right? So Absolutely. that was for sure. But then, then, you know, I have some stuff which is maybe unusual, like Mr. Tseboinski, like Gothic, Czech Gothic painting. That was a major influence for me, period. Okay. Okay, wait. Yeah, let me differentiate this. Contemporary artists. Oh, not, not Gothic. Contemporary. <laughs> yeah, so Joseph Boys, I'm good with, but like Gothic oh, painters. Okay. It's yeah. funny. I have, I have one favorite guy who's a painter. And he teaches, I think it's in San Francisco. And its name is Terry Hoff. Okay. So I don't know how many people know about him, but that's, that's, he's definitely great. What kind of work does he do? Painting. But... Painting, painting, but it's, it's different. It's, you have to check it out. So anyway, Terry Hoff. I will put links in the show notes. Right. <laughs> any more? Two others? I cannot think about anybody right now. But okay. Anyway, that's a good one, yeah. All right, lovely. Last question. Uh, any advice for the next generation? Listen to your inner self. That means you have to follow your instincts, nothing else. It's like like you said before, they teach in school, like you have to be this, you have to you have to be consistent in that, whatever focus to be best in this, best of, that's all bullshit. Okay. So absolutely not. Nothing. There's no rules. There's only one rule. And that it's, it's you follow your instinct and you don't get sidetracked by anything. And then the last nugget is that 
it's funny. It's kind of, I know it's a cliche. It's like from the book, The Alchemist, that everybody knows, for example. And when Santiago asks us that Englishman, he goes, why don't all the alchemists find you are able to convert, you know, lead to gold? Like, what stops them? Why, why, why is not everybody doing it? And the answer was, because they're only looking for the gold. They're not willing to do the journey. They're only looking for the gold. And so, in my opinion, the gold is the last thing you should think about. <laughs> Lovely. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Matt. That was fun. <laughs> that was great. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. I hope you're enjoying and learning as much from the podcast as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe too. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If there's someone that you admire or respect in the art world that you want to hear me have a conversation with, please send a message to me through Instagram and I'll be sure to try my best to get them as a guest. Additionally, if you have any specific questions that you'd like me to ask guests in the future, like more about art competitions or grant funding, send me those questions and I will ask the appropriate future guest on your behalf. In the near future, we will also be starting a newsletter, so please be sure to sign up at wisefoolpod.com. And no matter what you're doing now, try to have fun. <laughs>